0: Let's pray. Father, what a privilege to listen to ancient words, realizing that since they were recorded generations ago, they have been completely true and completely life-changing. We thank you for the privilege of listening to these words and pray that you will use them in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, to open our eyes to you and to draw us to yourself. Thank you for this time. We pray your blessing upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's great to be back. Uh, <clears throat> I told Pastor Van several months ago, don't expect us during during summertime, we're out of here. So uh, we were here on June the 2nd to preach on uh, commandment number, I don't remember what, don't murder. And... Uh, We have not been here since then. We've been in Hagerstown, in Durwood, Maryland, in Richmond, Virginia, in Bowie, Maryland. Uh, I've preached almost every Sunday, but it is great to be back, and uh, you've changed. (laughs) You look different. So we're still building a house in uh, Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And uh, here are some of the pictures. This is what it was like the Sunday I preached on the 2nd of June. This was our house. And on the 17th of July, here's what it looked like as a storm came. And two weeks ago, here is what it looked like. So we praise God for his goodness to us. And we think that we will be able to move in before Thanksgiving, right? I'm looking at Tom, the builder over there. By the way, if you need any kind of construction done on your house, I would highly recommend Tom Sendretzky. What you do is you go to the two- and three-year-old nursery and you say to one of the kids, where's Mr. Tom? And you'll find him. <clears throat> He's doing an excellent job, and we are looking forward to moving in. This fall, I am teaching in Sunday school, Parables. We're going to talk about parables, specifically parables in Luke. So I'd encourage you to uh, join us. And then on Wednesday night, for the men, I'm teaching uh, Romans 6, 7, and 8, which is a passage of Scripture that has been so beneficial to me. On Tuesday night, for Appalachian Bible College, I'm teaching Synoptic Gospels. I'd encourage you to think about joining us, getting college credit, studying Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So I'm asking the question today that is supposed to be the summary of what we've done for four months. And the question is, why study the ten when we're under grace? Or perhaps you've asked the question with this emphasis. Why study the ten when we're under grace? Perhaps this message should have come four months ago. I don't know, but I'm guessing that somewhere along the line, you're asking a question, what's the connection here, you know? The New Testament says we're under grace, and we're studying Ten Commandments. So today, I'd like to try to answer questions such as, what does it mean to be under the law? What is grace? And are we mixing everything up by putting Ten Commandments Into grace. You know? Are we under grace or are we not under grace? And if we're under grace, how come we're spending all this time on the Ten Commandments? Nobody asked that question? I'm the only one that asked it. All right. Well, I'll listen to my answer to myself. (laughs) I've got three statements to make, and the third statement has three parts, okay? Statement number one, commands are the foundation of life. Commands are the foundation of life you cannot live successfully without commands you grew up with commands brush your teeth wash your hands don't talk that way to your mother but somewhere along the idea somewhere along the line we get the idea that when we get older we're going to grow out of these And especially the idea comes, when I trust Jesus Christ as Savior and my life has changed, then what do I need these commands for? We had this at the Washington Bible College. We would have students that would come in and they would say, what is this handbook for? Do you know what's in this handbook? Rules. Why? They'd say things like, why is there a dress code? Why is there a command about why we need to be back in the dorm at night? Why do lights have to be out by 4 a.m.? Why are there regulations about signing in and out? Can't you run this school under grace? The administration here does not understand grace. Amen? So the implication is that if you have a commandment, you don't have grace. You know, grace has to somehow be commandment-less. So my response would be, so what are you going to do? And the response that I would get would be things like, well, you just, you live by, by love. You love God. You love one another. And I would ask questions like, you mean so you don't steal? Yeah, no, you don't steal. And you don't talk other people down. No, and you're honest with them, yeah. And I'd say, that sounds sort of like the Ten Commandments, you know. (laughs) Love God, isn't that commandment number one? Uh, Don't steal, is that number eight? Don't talk other people down, is that number nine? You know, you can't live without commandments. Commandments are an inherent part of all of life. Martin Luther said something connected with something that comes out like love God passionately and do what you want. And there sort of is that idea that if I love God, I just, I don't really need commandments. My question to that would be this, what do you mean by love God? How do you know you're loving God? What does loving God involve? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Can you love God and not keep the commandments? Can you love God and forget the commandments? See, you can't get away from this commandment idea. So, let me illustrate the New Testament under grace and what Paul says to us under grace. I'm in in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. This is my text for the day. I was hoping to go 425 to 521, but I'm just going to do a shorter passage. But let me read, beginning in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25. I've put on the board this passage. I've put on the screen this passage, and you'll notice certain capital letters. Every time you see a capital letter, that's a command. Okay, that's in the imperative in the Greek. Here we are in verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor Performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as, such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, Along with all malice, come to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, come to be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. In this section... There are 13 imperatives in the Greek, 13 commands. Verse 25 has the first command, speak truth. That sounds like it's close to one of the ten, you know. In Matthew 5, when Jesus interpreted the Ten Commandments, he said, Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Speak truth. Command number two, verse 26 and 27, the one about anger. Sounds like one of the ten. Remember how Jesus interpreted the commandment against murder to include hate and anger against your brother. Last time we were here, I spoke on this command, don't murder. Jesus said in Matthew 5.21, I'm reading Matthew 5.21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whosoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whosoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. See what he's doing? Commands. Command number three, verse 28. Don't steal. Isn't that similar to command number eight? In the Ten Commandments. But you'll notice it goes further. Commandment number eight has two words don't steal. This command starts there but continues by saying, But rather let him labor, he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who is in need. It includes live for the benefit of other people. So in this section, Chapter 4, verse 25 to 521 of 29 verses and 27 commands. 29 verses and 27 commands. So what is this? Is this grace or is this law? How can you be under grace and have twenty seven commands and twenty nine verses? I thought we got away from the Ten Commandments, and now we got 27 new ones. There aren't much different from the old ones. See where it's going? So this idea that says, I really don't like commands, that probably started when you were two years old with your mother, (laughs) you know, and you've been trying to get away from them ever since. This really is not God's idea. David said, or the psalmist said back in Psalm 119, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. I can remember memorizing that verse and saying, I think he wrote it the wrong way. It should say, Oh, how love I thy word. You know, the commandment less word. No. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Do you love commandments? Or are you running from them? Statement number two says, commands define a relationship. Not only commands are are the foundation of life, but commands define a relationship. Commands define a relationship. By this I mean they introduce the individuals. When you're in a relationship, how do you get to know an individual? Commands. I'm speaking now primarily to husbands, all right? And I'm assuming that probably 60%, 70% of this audience is married. So I'm speaking to husbands. Did you, when you said, I do... Did you ever become surprised by the commandments that you put yourself under? You know, did you find that after you got married, without realizing it, you entered this new era of things such as thou shalt eat any food creation that she designs, Thou shalt assume the debts of thy mate. Thou shalt provide for her needs. Thou shalt listen to her talk and encourage her in it. Anybody? Get into that? You know, before I was married, I was sort of married to the Washington Bible College. I'd get up at 6, go to school, stay there all day, come back at 10, 11, 12 sleep a while, go back, and I married this beautiful Georgia peach and knew that, you know, I was now in the Garden of Eden, I was in bliss, and she expected me to be home at five in the afternoon for dinner, and initially, my response sort of was, I didn't say this, but my response sort of was, for what? I'm busy, you know? And she expected me to carry out the garbage and quite a few things, other things, that were not listed in the marriage contract at all, were not even mentioned. I felt I was blindsided until I thought about how she was blindsided. You know, she had to leave her job to marry me. She had to move. She had to learn to improvise on very little. She had to be ready for strangers that I brought home unexpectedly. I think one of the striking moments was that one night, the babysitter got there before I got there, and the babysitter had to tell her that she was there because it was a special night out that I had planned, but she didn't know about it. And uh, we had a beautiful night, and, but she was unprepared and frustrated because she didn't have time to get ready. I figured she was always ready. <laughs> So I've learned in 43 years that there are certain commands that I must obey, certain lines I should never cross if I want to live (laughs) and if I want to remain healthy. So husbands, can you think about commands that introduce you to your wife? Would you say that you were introduced when you got married to at least 40 New commands? Forty, maybe? Some of you fifty? Sixty? Anybody here go for hundred? <laughs> commands introduce you to a person. They, they, inter, they introduce the relationship. Exactly the same thing is true with God. Exactly the same thing. How do you know God? How do you know you love God? It's connected with commands. Look at this passage again. I'm back in chapter Ephesians chapter four, verse twenty-five. Four thirty-two. Excuse me. I'm in Ephesians four thirty-two. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. We're commanded to forgive because we've been forgiven. We're commanded to be kind. Because he is kind, and he is kind to us, and he wants us to be like him. So what kind of relationship is there here? We have a relationship with somebody who's got a, who's got a goal in this relationship. He wants to go somewhere in this relationship. He wants us to become like him. Notice chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, become, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor, sweet-smelling aroma. Here's the definition of the relationship. You're in his family, completely forgiven. Now, what do you do? He wants you to be like him. Second Peter even says that God's goal is that we become partakers of the divine nature. That's where these commands come in. So there are many pictures of the new relationship that God has brought us into. We've been brought into a family. It talks about the family. And we get the picture of the family of God. And there are a series of commands that are tied in with being family, with family life. Love one another. Meet your brothers and sisters. Bear one another's burdens. Share their problems. That's all family life. The relationship with God is one of family. Which leads me to this side note at 14 minutes at 12. Uh, for any of you who are interested in adoption, there are a lot of adoption possibilities of kids between two and six out of Texas. And I've got a connection that said, find me some families that want to adopt these poor kids. They're sort of rescue kind of situations where they're rescuing them from homes. So if you're interested, say a word or drop me a note. So Christian life is pictured as a family. The Christian life is pictured as a body. We are the body of Christ. That has a series of commands. 1 Corinthians 13 or 12 talks about the fact that you as part of the body need to find out what part you are. How do you function? You need to develop skill in your gift. Relate to other members. Don't look down on them. And don't feel like you don't have a part. You're part of a body. All of those commands are connected with that picture of body and body life. We are part of the temple. There's a picture of temple. That we are the temple in which God wants to dwell on earth. Well, what do you do there? How do you do that? Well, the temple needs to be holy. Temples are absolutely, totally holy. temple needs to be a place of worship. As the psalmist said back in Psalm 22, yet you are enthroned, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. So what happens in a marriage when the husband cares, cares nothing about the commands the wife has? There it is. <laughs> you, cannot, you cannot maintain a marriage as a marriage if one member is not interested in the commands. The commands are inherent in the relationship. They're a part of the relationship. That's the way God is. He wants us in this relationship and his commands are good. Number three, number one was commands provide the foundation for life. Number two, commands define a relationship. Number three, being under the law is different than obeying commands. Being under the law is different than obeying commands. This is where we often have a problem. It's one thing to be under the law. It's another thing to obey a command. So let me make three statements here. Number one, the law was established as a DIY system. The law was established as a DIY system. You you know what DIY? Do it yourself. The law was the official, national, God-ordained, do-it-yourself system. When, When Moses gave the Ten Commandments back in Exodus 20, he didn't stop there. Exodus 21 has the judgments, explaining how masters ought to te- te- treat slaves, and then how to deal with personal injuries, and then how, how to deal with pro- property rights. All that's part of the law. Then when that ended, Exodus 25 begins the tabernacle. And then the priesthood, God sets up the priesthood. And then he sets up sacrifices, Leviticus 1 to 7. Then he sets up feast days. This all comes as a package. This entire package has an educational purpose. The educational purpose is, number one, to show people that on their own, by themselves, they're hopeless. Number two, to point to the answer, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, and the picture of Jesus Christ. So the purpose of the law is to wake people up to the fact that they have no ability to please God. Here's Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Notice that verse 19 says, the law speaks to those under the law. That's Jewish people. But the purpose of speaking to Jewish people is to bring the whole world into account before God and to shut all their mouths. It's to show that the entire world that they are guilty before God. Because, verse 20, by works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight. The purpose of the law was never to save people. The purpose of the law was to unsave people. And before a person gets gets saved, they first have to get unsaved. The problem today is that so many people think they're already saved or on the road to salvation. Here's Galatians chapter 3 verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Under the law, blessing only came for complete obedience. The law system came as a huge plate glass window. Huge plate glass window. You keep the entire window or there's no hope. How much of a window do you have to break? How, what do you have to, how many times do you have to break a window before you need a new one? You know? You have to break it in two places? Break it in five places? No. One break and you need a new window. It's the way the law was. The law expected complete, perfect obedience. It couldn't be satisfied with anything less. So the law was God's disapproval system. The law was continually saying... Sorry, not enough. Sorry, you missed it. Sorry, that was wrong. Sorry, you didn't finish it. Why would God set up something so depressingly failure prone? Why would God give this to a group of people? that only ground them down into the ground and said, sorry, 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 you can't do it. It had a great purpose. The great purpose was to drive them to Jesus Christ, to introduce them to the marvelous grace of God who wanted to give them what they needed if they just realized it. And what's happened today? 3,500 years of this national display of man's hopeless condition and his need of Jesus Christ as Savior. And what do you have today? USA Weekend Magazine, this is many years ago, had an article that asked the question, what are your chances of going to heaven? Mike Gallagher of Deerfield Beach, Florida, said 85%. I don't think the entrance exam will be that tough. Sylvia Gibbs of Hammond, Indiana said, My chances are slim, maybe 50-50. You have to be more than a nice person. But I'm still in the running. (laughs) To go to heaven, she said, you have to be a good person, someone who's humble and doesn't just do good things to prove they're good. Whatever that means. I find these answers discouraging because they show no understanding of the Ten Commandments and the purpose originally of the Ten Commandments. They still hold out hope for their do-it-yourself method of achieving heaven. I'm still in the running. I don't think the the entrance exam will be that tough. The purpose of the law for 3,500 years has been to stamp the word impossible on all human ability to make it. And we've got a whole world that still thinks they can make it. That's why the law is so important. That's why the law system is so important. Billy Graham says, when I preach, I preach law. Absolutely. That's the way to do it. People need to hear, thou shalt not covet. don't steal, need to realize the fact that they're guilty, hopelessly guilty. Now, in contrast to that, number two here, grace is a beggar system. Grace is a beggar system. I use the word beggar intentionally, beggar system. There are times when the definition of a word is extremely important, and one of those words that is so important is the word grace. Grace is sometimes translated by or defined as G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's a good explanation. It needs a little additional explanation to it. But it means that God gives us freely... Gifts that somebody else pays for. But grace means a gift. Grace means God gives freely. And by definition, a gift cannot be earned or ever paid for. In order to be a gift, there can be zero payment, there can be zero. Effort to earn it. Once you add effort to earn it, it's not a gift. I'm sure you've experienced that where you've spent money to give something good and expensive to your friend to say to that friend, I love you and I really think you're important and find out two weeks later they're trying to pay you back. You know? Or at least you're asking a question, why did they do that? Are they doing that because they're trying to pay for what I You know, if they're trying to pay you back, that almost sounds like they're rejecting your gift. That's the key with God. It has to be a gift. So I'm reading Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Romans 4 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due." Verse 5, and to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Notice two different people. One who works, meaning works to earn. One who says, I can earn this. The verse says that God's response is to pay him fairly. You want to earn it? I'll pay you fairly. I'll give you what's due. Okay? Okay. The one who doesn't work in verse five is not just the one who's lazy. It's not that he refuses to work, it's the fact that he realizes he can't do anything, realizes his hopeless condition. He trusts what God says and asks for the gifts and the gift and calls on the name of the Lord, receives Christ as his Savior. His faith is counted as righteousness. So you can't come to God and say, I'm good enough for you to save me. You can't be good enough. You can't ever earn salvation. You come that way and God cannot give you a gift, grace, when you're trying to pay for it. This is why the Ten Commandments are so important. The system of law is so important. You have to understand, first of all, that you are Hopeless. As I said before, before you get saved, you first of all have to get unsaved. And the purpose of the law is to unsave people by showing them that they're not in the running, that the entrance exam is not what they think it is. You ever gotten to that point? Ever gotten to the point of realizing the fact that you have nothing to offer God? That there is nothing you can do to earn your way into the pearly gates? You can't say to God, do you realize how much I gave to that that guy? Do you know how much I've helped people? Have you seen my life? You can't go that way. It doesn't work. You have to realize the fact that God because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross, wants to give you something freely. Ever come to that place? Salvation means that I come as a beggar with nothing to offer to a God who has paid for it all and wants to give it to me. If you've never come that way, I would encourage you today to make sure that your relationship with God is based on grace, not on works. I'd I'd be happy to talk to you. If you want to talk, I'd be happy to talk. Or talk to an elder. The truth is that we will never pay for God's gifts. Never. Before we receive them, after we receive them. God will remain eternally uncompensated for his gifts. Eternally. Well, you say, how do you respond then? You respond with thank you. Here's Psalm 100. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. bless his name for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting his faithfulness to ever to all generations. You ever thank God for what he's given you. You sure you've received his his grace. <clears throat> you know it's a sad thing to live a life of a thief and a murderer and wind up in hell. It's probably even greater sadness to sit in the chairs of Fellowship Bible Church and wind up in hell. Are you sure that you've come as a beggar? Grace is available for beggars, people who have nothing. And then, I'm going to do it, okay? Let me add statement number three here. Grace puts us in a new relationship. God's grace puts us in a new relationship. He wants to give you something with no effort on your part that will completely change your relationship. She was poor. She grew up on the wrong side of the tracks in a small shack with her mother and grandmother. Didn't have much opportunity for advancement. Since advancement, rarely visited that side of the tracks. After high school, she found minimum wage jobs to help her feed her increasingly sick mother and dying grandmother. She finally landed a job, at not much above minimum wage, at a shoe factory. To avoid any trouble or misunderstanding, her new employer handed her a 17-page manual which contained rules and conditions she was expected to agree with and work under. He agreed to pay a certain amount of wages per week with provision for sick pay, vacation, coffee breaks, proper working conditions, and a couple other fringe benefits. She was to agree to work 48 hours a week, beginning at 7.30 a.m., and produce a certain amount of work. Other expectations were also listed. She was to agree to them, sign the last page of the employment manual. Failure to abide by the rules would break the contract. She would be subject to discipline, loss of pay, termination of her contract, she signed the contract, placed herself under the law, and began her job. Things did not go the way she expected. It went much better. Within a year she'd fallen in love with her employer, and he with her, and he had proposed, she had accepted, they got married in the she they, they got married, and in the process she found out to her surprise that he was one of the richest men on planet Earth. And so, the day of her marriage, she became an instant millionaire as well as the talk of the town. Question. What happens to the contract she signed back there on the employment manual? Well, the moment she became his wife, she ceased to be his employee. She's no longer under the contract. She doesn't punch a clock. She has no set of Rules as an employee to obey employer. She's free. Free to spend all her time with her husband. Free to develop a brand new life. Do you see the point? This is such an important issue because the Christian life is designed to be like that marriage, not an employee, employees, employers, employees manual. The truth of the matter is, we are that woman. If we've come to Christ, we've married the boss. The Christian life is a communion with someone you love, not a set of directives with a time schedule. The Christian life is listening to a person, not setting out on your own to do the best you can. What this saying is we are not under the system. Now, statement number four. Free people who are married to the richest person in the universe, can put themselves under the old DIY system. You see, once you come to Christ as a beggar, Jesus Christ wants us to live as beggars. He wants us to live trusting him for what we need, for the supply of our daily lives. And it's much easier, since we're in the habit, of going back to the old system of saying, let me prove how good I am. Let me show you what I can do here. You know? Let me, let me, I'll do it better than anybody else. See, that's the old system of viewing God's commands as performance. I am going to perform. The new system has the same commands But they're in a love, a marriage relationship. The commands don't change. It's the relationship that is so different. Here's Galatians 3.10 again. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Do you see the word rely? Rely. Rely. The difference between law and grace in your life is what you rely on. Are you relying on your ability to produce, to perform? Grace is relying on God's supply of my needs. Grace is relying on relationship with him. Fellowship with Him, walking with Him. So, what do we do? We live with our new husband. We walk by the Spirit. We listen. We obey. We ask Him for ability. We spend time with Him in His Word and in prayer. I think one of the, to me, one of the clearest passages on what the Christian life is like is Matthew 11 29 and 30. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is a command. You take my yoke. But the command is a picture. It's a metaphor. Yoke. A yoke implies harnessing two animals together for work. Think about that picture and that command. What does it mean? It's a command to one person. Take my yoke. Who's in the other part of the yoke? You're just getting into one part of it. Who's in the other part? Jesus said, it's my yoke. He's in a yoke? What's he doing in a yoke? He's in a yoke. So what does that mean? That means that if you're exhausted, it really doesn't matter. Because the other side of the yoke is all-powerful. If you're brain dead and you feel completely stupid... It doesn't matter because whoever is in the other part of the yoke is omniscient. See, the whole thing is not based on performance. The whole thing is not based on what you can do. It's not an issue of are you strong enough, are you perfect enough, are you wise enough, do you have the artillery. The question comes down to are you in the yoke? Command is take the yoke. And in taking the yoke, learn about me. You're going to find it's simple. It's really surprisingly simple. It's really surprisingly easy because of who's in the yoke. My guess is that being yoked with Jesus Christ involves commands like, all right, we're going to get on the ball early, you know? And uh, we are going out to deal with people who are in need. We're going to deal with the less fortunate people. And we're going to take on a job that's impossible. To you, it looks impossible. All right? Let's go. And in the yoke, Jesus Christ may say to you, I want you to go talk to that person. You say, I can't. Been an enemy for ten years. Go talk to that person. I'll give you words to say. I'll change the situation. You go. You know? See, the relationship is a relationship of a yoke with Jesus Christ, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords himself. Amen? I'll take an amen on that. That's amazing that God would invite us to that. So it's not an issue of what we can do. Life is an issue of what He is doing and whether we join Him, whether we are with Him. So I trust this has helped a little bit for you to see the difference between law and grace grace is not a system that has no commands grace has plenty of commands all kinds of commands and the question is simply what do you rely on what are you doing are you into performance are you into the do-it-yourself system of pleasing god it's hopeless have you come to christ are you really focusing your mind and heart on Jesus Christ, on the person, on obedience, on learning? It's him. So let me end with Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, at 1214. Ephesians five twenty-five. 25. Now, let me end with this. I've change, changed my subject. I remembered. I picked this up. Here's what we sang today. You sang this today, all right? Lord, I come to you. Let my heart be changed, renewed, flowing from the grace that I have found in you. And Lord, I've come to know the weaknesses I see in me will be stripped away by the power of your love. Hold me close. Let your love surround me. Bring me near. (laughs) Maybe you should quote it. Draw me to your side. And as I wait, I'll rise up like the eagle. And I'll soar with you. Your spirit leads me on in the power of your love. is that great? We sang that. You sang that. Did you mean it? I would encourage you this, this week to live this week with Jesus Christ, to be in the yoke with him for the purpose of obeying his commands with all your heart. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege to be yoked with the one who is fairer than 10,000, the bright and morning star, the king of kings. And we are privileged to be yoked with him. I pray if there's someone here who has never trusted Jesus Christ, has never come as a beggar to receive your grace, that they might do that today. And I ask that you will strengthen us. Encourage, guide, direct, empower us that we might obey you fully with all our hearts. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.